Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, you'll join radio and television producer Tom Ballard in conversation with the Melbourne Bureau Chief of Guardian Australia, Melissa Davey, as they discuss Melissa's book, The Case of George Pell. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. Now, to introduce the event, here's the book's publisher, from Scribe Publishing, Henry Rosenblum. This is my very first virtual launch, so I think it's an auspicious one because it's such an important book. Can I say, first of all, I mean, I've obviously been involved in in editing many books over the years. It's now over 40 years since Scribe came into existence. And working on this book has, to me, felt like one of the most significant things I could do um, in my publishing career. And that's really both because of Melissa and about because of the subject of the book. Uh, Melissa has really impressed me enormously for lots of reasons. Um, One of them is her absolute fierce determination to to tell the truth, really, and to write something which set the record straight as much as she was physically capable of doing that about a series of trials which uh, were very important in themselves but were also terribly hard to understand because all the reporters were functioning under great restrictions. Um, as, As probably everybody here knows, there was a suppression order in place for very good reasons for a long time and the journalists had to take note of everything but not able, were not able to report anything for a long time. And then there was um, a, hung, a hung jury, there was a retrial, and the process started all over again. And Melissa was determined to explain to readers of the eventual book what the legal processes were, what the evidence was, as much as she was able to reveal it. Um, as you will all know, the, the original complainant Um, His evidence has never been made public. It's only been inferred, as it were, from reports of it in the course of one or two of the cases or the trials. But Melissa was there for every every part of the process, right up to remotely viewing the High Court's finding. And um, obviously what she's writing about is of immense significance. And what I... The other thing about it which impressed me so much was that she seemed determined to maintain an even keel when she was being buffeted from all sides. And she talks about this in the manuscript, in the book itself. People, she was a journalist, a working journalist, who was simply trying to report what was happening. And she was being asked to take sides from both sides, as it were, all the time. It was under enormous pressure to do that. She was also under pressure from her own management to be the first with the story, to keep up to date with what was going on. Um, It was an an immense burden. And at the same time, she was writing the book in a very compressed period of time because under pressure from me, to some extent, we felt the book needed to come out as soon as possible, which needed needed to be written as soon as possible. And yet there were processes which we didn't know the end end to, uh, ultimately the appeals uh, resulting in the High Court. So there was a lot of pressure on Melissa in writing this book. and, And yet with all that, as you'll find, I suspect most of you wouldn't have had a chance to read the book yet, you'll find that she maintains, as I I say, a very even tone. And essentially what she's laid down is a document, a long-form document, which I think will be seen as a definitive account of what happened in the George Pell case. Uh, I don't want to talk about the merits of the book. That's not my job as a publisher. 
but I'm looking forward myself to hearing the conversation between Tom and Melissa about it. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. I'll uh, take over there. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is Tom Ballard, and I'm going to be facilitating the conversation with Melissa this evening. Uh, that was a lovely uh, outlining of exactly uh, what this book is about, how important it was, and how well it's been navigated by its author. So thank you, Henry. Um, uh, firstly, I'd like to say, you know, it might be a weird choice <laughs> to some of you to facilitate this conversation. I'm a silly comedian, and we're obviously a long way away from anything that's particularly funny with this subject matter, but I happen to be a personal friend of Mel, uh, but more importantly, I'm a huge fan of her journalism and the way that she writes about these kind of issues, which, which Henry touched on as well. Um, she very kindly came on my podcast last year in about March when we were, uh, just as George Pell was being sentenced, and we had a great conversation then about the various issues that this case and this trial throws up. And so I was uh, honoured when she asked me to, to join her tonight, and it was a pleasure to read this book. Um, Melissa Davey is a Walkley award-winning journalist and has been the Guardian's Melbourne Bureau Chief for several years. Previously, she worked for the Sydney Morning Herald, the Sun Herald and News Limited. She's been nominated for three Walkley Awards and two Quill Awards and has won two New York Festival Awards for The Reckoning, a podcast series she collaborated on with David Ma and Miles Martignoni. She's won uh, awards for medical bodies for her work reporting on rheumatic heart disease and Aboriginal children and for investigation into the brutality of gynaecologist Emil Shorky Gaed, which triggered a government inquiry. The Case of George Pell is her first book. Good evening, Melissa Davey. Hello, congratulations on the book. Hello, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction and thank you to Henry um, too. Um, I will never get, forget walking into Henry's office at Scribe and pitching this book to him and trying to explain why I thought it was important. And um, Henry backed this book right from the start, um, this unknown woman walking into his office and saying, I have an idea. So, so thank you so much for that lovely introduction. And thank you both for supporting the book and doing this for me tonight. Of course, of course. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Firstly, I'd just like to say, you know, obviously we're touching on some, um, you know, potentially triggering pretty dark subject matter. If anybody joining us tonight might be experiencing issues, please remember you can always reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or if you go to the website of the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sex Abuse you'll find a range of resources there and services that might be helpful to you so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, it is a fascinating book it is this meticulous accounting of exactly what happened and and the uh, issues that uh, that are explored in it of course we're uh, we're doing this launch via zoom and it's been released during a pandemic how do you feel about that Mel? Well, you know, my day job is um, Melbourne Bureau Chief for The Guardian and one of my rounds is the medical and health round. So I've been in the middle of reporting on this pandemic pretty much since it hit Australia. Um, and I think COVID-19 has kind of rightfully overshadowed everything at the moment. Um, at the moment, I'm in the middle of investigating what's going on in aged care because of this virus. So um, it's been quite a, quite a stressful time and my book kind of came out amongst all of that. Um, so, you know, Cardinal George Pell, he kind of, he fits into the key demographic of people that um, need to worry about this virus, doesn't he? So I think that, um, you know, Certainly. he'll probably be abiding to all of the, the public health laws that are currently in place. Certainly, certainly, as we all should. I mean, it, it's, it's a bizarre moment reading the book where, where you realise this, this, the appeal, acquittal, came down this year and it feels like a lifetime ago. How much do you think the current events that we're experiencing, the coronavirus pandemic has kind of overshadowed this story, which really is one of the most important stories in Australian public life of the past decade. 
Yeah, I've been really surprised by how many people are still interested in this story um, and how many people are engaging with the book. Um, I've already had comments from people who are reading it. Um, I had a comment from a district court judge today who has read the book. Um, I've had comments from people who say that legal students should, should read the book because it goes quite a lot into the detail of the court process. So, you know, like I said, I think this virus has, has rightfully overshadowed a lot of things. It's, um, it's terrible what it's doing to the world, but I think that um, we can't turn away from other important topics that are happening at the same time. There's always a risk, right, during a pandemic like this that um, we forget about some of the other things occurring in the world. So um, it has been difficult um, and a little bit overshadowed, but um, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised by how many people are still engaging with it. For sure. That's reflected in the number of people joining us uh, tonight. And thank you to everyone who's joining us for, for, for this event this evening. So Henry sort of laid it out there. You, as, as far as you know, are sort of the only journalist to have covered, you know, the Royal Commission extensively and then this entire trial process, the committal hearing, Pell's initial uh, trial, the mistrial, the retrial and the appeals process. When along that journey did you decide you really had to write this book? So I think there were a couple of moments where I realised that whether I wanted to or not, I, I had to do this book. Um, one was when the verdict was delivered, and I'll never forget that moment. The courtroom was deathly silent as this cardinal sitting in the dock behind us in this courtroom um, was found five times guilty of these crimes. No one knew what was going on in this courtroom. You know, Melbourne was still continuing outside those courtroom doors. Um, nobody knew what was happening apart from very, very few people. And um, I kind of naively, in a way, thought, well, there's a suppression order on this case, so this is, this is really big, um, but I can't write about it yet. No one can report on it yet. So we kind of have some time um, on, on this one. Um, and so as that was sinking in, and, and in the seconds after the verdict was handed down, I got this text message from a lawyer contact that wasn't in the courtroom. And it just said, is it true? Is he guilty? Mm. And I realised, wow, this news has already leaked. Um, and then, of course, there was this panic because um, the, the word obviously got out to newsrooms. Um, and... These very cryptic front pages were emerging in the days that followed um, that verdict. So many of you might recall that there were front pages with the, um, the, the entire front page blanked out um, with headlines saying, you know, the story that we want to tell you but can't and similar things like that. People tried to report on a very important figure who's been found guilty but we can't name him and they tried to kind of skirt around the issue. And I just thought, wow, you know, the, the handful of journalists that have been in this case from beginning to end, we can't say a word. We can't write anything. We can't put cryptic messages on Twitter like other people feel like they can do. Um, we had been sitting in that courtroom for weeks by that point um, through the mistrial and the retrial, and we knew how Justice Peter Kidd operated. There was no way he was going to lift this suppression order. And we also understood why the suppression order was needed. So there was that context as well. And eventually um, that, that Twitter kind of chatter um, continued, the, the front pages came out, and I just thought, well, a whole, a whole lot of people who know nothing about this case are weighing in here. And then the other moment was when, um, when the suppression order lifted a couple of months later and suddenly a flurry of people were writing about the case who 
hadn't been there or who had attended for a couple of days. Um, and they were really just reporting on the defence case. Um, it almost, some of the reports looked like they had literally been handed somehow the defence's arguments and were just printing those arguments. And I just thought, I will not let this story be dictated by a bunch of white men who have not been in this case at all, who have not spent a second in the trial and who don't know what I know. And that was the point I just thought um, the only way to do it is to write a book. What are those major misconceptions or preconceived ideas or just erroneous ideas about this man in this case that you're really hoping to, to zero in on and, and correct by writing this book? There are so many. Um, I think one of the pervasive myths that really came out was that um, a complainant in a case or a victim of, of abuse will come forward in a certain way, that certain events will happen following the crime, that they will tell someone, that they will disclose, that they will go to police, that if there are multiple victims and those victims will talk to each other about what occurred to them. Um, there are myths that were perpetuated about how and why child sexual abuse occurs. So this idea that, um, you know, there are always um, abuses that occur behind closed doors. Well, it, abuse often does occur behind closed doors, but not always. Um, we know that children were abused in churches, in classrooms, in front of peers. Um, there are just so many different factors um, that come into play. So it felt like a lot of the, the conversation following the trial had this idea about what a complainant or a victim should and must do. And it wasn't based on evidence. Um, because I had sat through the, the five-year Royal Commission inquiry into institutional child sexual abuse, I had come to understand some of the dynamics of how abuse occurs, why it happens, how it happens, um, especially within an institution. And so it didn't make sense to me that a lot of the reports that came out following Pell's case kind of kept exacerbating some of these myths. Um, and, and that really troubled me. Well, those are certainly myths that you correct in the book, and, and it's a very worthwhile mission indeed. So congratulations on that. As I say, it's a really meticulous... Um, uh, accounting of those trials. You really take us inside the courtroom and you let us know what it was like there. Um, one extract I'll just share with people briefly. Uh, other church supporters and priests came in and out of the trial too, sometimes approaching the doctor to shake Pell's hand and wish him well. A priest was ejected by security for being disruptive, making noises in agreement with Pell's defence team and frequently forgetting to turn off his phone, which is one brief moment of levity I found in, in the book. I didn't realise that there were um, sort of hecklers and stuff in, in the courtroom there and people getting kicked out. What are some of the other moments that really stick out in your mind um, from this court case and, and you covering these trials? Well, obviously, the verdict coming down, um, that will always stick with me. Just this feeling that something momentous was happening and um, there was no one there really to, to, to witness, it apart, witness it apart from those, you know, small group of Pell supporters and survivor advocates and, and the journalists in the room. Um, there are other moments that have stuck with me from, from quite way back. So um, I remember when the Child Sexual Abuse Royal Commission first held its hearings in Melbourne and Chief Justice Peter McClellan held this background briefing for journalists um, where we were allowed to meet with him and ask him, what is this Royal Commission? How will it work? Um, what are your powers? And that kind of thing. Um, and I remember him saying to us that 
you know, we could investigate thousands of institutions here, but we've had to focus in on um, a certain number. And that was the first time I really started to think about and grapple with the enormity of, of the issue. Um, like how many institutions are we talking about here? And, and as it turns out, there were thousands of them where, where abuse was occurring. Um, it planted in my mind um, the, the real scale of the problem. Another moment that really uh, sticks out to me was when Cardinal Pell gave evidence before the Royal Commission. And at this point, didn't really know much about Cardinal Pell. Um, I, I knew that he was very conservative. I knew that he was very high up in the, the Catholic Church, that he was in the Vatican. I knew those kind of basic details. Um, but I thought that if you are someone in a position of power like that, and you're called to give evidence before the Royal Commission, and you know that that Royal Commission evidence is going to be broadcast, then you would be well prepared. Um, perhaps some of you listening tonight, maybe you're in a position of, of power, maybe you're teachers, you know, maybe you're um, in healthcare. And just think about the enormity of being called before a Royal Commission to give evidence about abuse that's occurred in your school or in your health setting, and, and how much you would prepare for that, how much you would engage um, with the evidence that came before you were called, um, especially if that evidence related to your place of work. And what struck me about Cardinal Pell, and it's always stuck with me, is just how he, how little he knew. Like he had done no preparation, it seemed to me. Um, he was asked about evidence that was given literally the day before by a survivor. Um, and he was asked, you know, what he thought of that evidence and it, it related to the church and some failings of the church. He didn't watch it, didn't get the notes, didn't care. I mean, it, it, it just baffled me. I mean, how far removed do you have to be to not prepare for something like that? And I think many of his statements that were made since then, before the Royal Commission, really just showed um, an arrogance, you know, a, a lack of willingness to engage with the best evidence. And and this is something that I've seen time and time again with the church, you know, just a lack of willingness to acknowledge who the experts are on this topic, to read their reports and to engage with the evidence and, and to be fully informed and at least aware when they talk about topics like this. Perhaps the most uh, flamboyant character that crops up in the book is, is Robert Richter, the, the defence QC of um, Pell in those initial two trials. Um, you lay out the way he um, mounted the case in court and you actually managed to get a sit-down interview with him. A lot of people from the criminal justice system were hesitant to talk to you. Um, many of them remain anonymous throughout the book. Robert Richter decides to give you time um, in his offices, in his chambers, to sit down and, and talk about this case. What did he tell you? Yeah, I think it took about a year to secure that interview with Robert Richter. And, you know, occasionally he'd say, oh, yeah, you know, next week, next week, and then something would happen and he would cancel and I just have to keep on and on and on with him. And then I just remember one day I got a text message from him saying, you know, can you come to my chambers at, I think, two o'clock on a weekday or something? And, and, and that was it. And, and what Robert told me um, was that he and Pell became friends. Um, he admitted that to me. He's, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because Robert Richter, Pell's defence barrister, and, and Cardinal Pell are very different people. Um, Richter is quite progressive. He's an atheist. Um, he advocates for and has done cases working on abortion rights and access. Um, and then you have Pell, who is a staunch conservative, who is against all those things that, that Richter stands for. 
But the way Richter described it to me was that it was kind of meeting of intellectual minds. You know, they would talk about literature, they would talk about um, the news and current events. And, and so perhaps this is something that um, defence barristers try not to do, but, but in this case, Richter did become friends with Pell. He liked him. He said that he found him quite amicable and, and friendly and funny, which is a very different picture to the Cardinal George Pell that we have all seen before the Royal Commission. I mean, I don't think anyone could describe him as warm and amicable. Um, so he also talked about why Pell did not get called to the witness stand. You know, why didn't... Obviously, in the court, they played the video of Pell being interviewed by detectives in Rome. But Pell never went to the, the witness stand and actually was questioned or cross-examined. And... Richter's, Richter kind of said to me, well, what would be the point, you know, what would be the point of Pell getting up there and denying something that didn't happen, that he, it, it, he says never happened, couldn't have happened. So it just didn't make sense. Um, the other thing to say about Richter is, you know, I have a lot of respect for the fact that he did speak to me, um, that he did come forward. He knows how he is perceived. He knows that there is a lot that comes with defending someone like Cardinal George Pell. Um, and it's not my job to, you know, not interview certain people or approach certain people because of how they're seen publicly. Um, it's my job to interview everyone involved who will speak to me. And so that's what I did. And, and I do have a lot of respect for the fact that, that Richter, you know, he takes on a lot of pro bono cases. He does a lot of charitable work. Um, he has done a lot of fighting for different social justice issues. You can't ignore that, nor should you separate that from Robert Richter, the person who defended Cardinal George Pell. He had a job to do and everyone has a right to a defence. And I suppose this touches on perhaps a big question, perhaps a question people are asking uh, at the moment uh, as they approach the book or as they listen to tonight. You know, the question is, do you think that George Pell is guilty? Do you think he did it? And uh, just towards the end of the book, you write this. Some people will have wanted me to give my opinion in this book about Pell's guilt or innocence and on whether the courts got it right or wrong. But that's not what this book is about. It's about more than the trials of one man, Cardinal George Pell. It is about the complexities of justice. What should we think about the question of George Pell's guilt, Mel? I think we need to understand that there is no such thing as a perfect case with a perfect set of facts, perfect witnesses with perfect recall and a perfect trial. There can't be. I mean, you can make all kinds of reforms to the justice system that you want. We will never get there. You can have video evidence of a crime occurring and know for sure who did it, but you will never know for sure the motivations, the actions leading up to that. There will be so many unknowns still. And so I think that is something that I, this book grapples with. Um, the way the process works and, and why the process has to work that day, keeping in mind that that way, keeping in mind that there is no perfect system. Um, one of the big questions, I suppose, that comes out of that is what does justice look like? You know, mm. there is justice in the legal sense. You know, you, you take someone to court, you might get charges against them. There's that side of justice. But there's actually been really interesting research done by um, Dr. Judy Corton, who is a lawyer, and she asked um, survivors of sexual abuse what justice meant to them. Does it mean redress and compensation? Um, does it mean jailing their, their accuser? And for many of them, 
Justice looked like those who knew but did nothing being held to account and acknowledging that they knew and did nothing. And I found that really interesting. So I think, you know, the justice system is only one aspect of this process. Um, in the case of Cardinal Pell, it did, it did go through the justice system, but justice to survivors doesn't always look like having their abuser put in jail. For some it does, but it's much more complex than that. And I think that complexity is something that we should take away from, from this entire case. You know, it's also um, something I've thought about quite a lot in regards to the complainant. So um, I think a lot of people have this idea that if only they had the complainant's evidence, if only that was made public, we would know for sure whether Cardinal Pell was guilty or innocent. Um, there have even been calls to publish the transcripts. Now, there are protections over pe people who are victims of sexual assault um, and the way they give evidence in court. That wasn't a special case for this complainant in Pell's case. It applies universally. Um, but there were people after the, the Pell trial calling for the complainant's evidence to be made public. And I just thought, you know, knowing how this case played out and, and knowing how divisive it was, what difference would it make? Like, I really don't think that people would suddenly be sure of Pell's guilt or innocence if they had that complainant testimony in front of them or if they could watch it. Um, we also do know quite a lot about his story. Um, it was quoted heavily throughout the case. Um, the, the legal parties are allowed to quote from the complainant's evidence, and so they do throughout, and we can report on that, and I've reported on that extensively. And so by the time you have opening and closing addresses, by the time you have cross-examination of other witnesses, you actually start to get quite a, a strong picture of what was said. And I just don't know that um, making that public would, would add to that. It, it, look, and I know there, there are limits about how, how much you want to um, discuss these issues necessarily, but I just personally, reading the book, the overwhelming impression I, I was left with at the end was it was extremely hard to imagine why the complainant would make a story like this up. And you get to a point where you realise that we may very well be living in a world in which both that, that account may be true, but also we have a criminal justice system for very good reasons that may not necessarily be able to produce a, a, a conviction in this case. And that, that is the complexity of justice, I suppose, in the messy, messy world in which we live, right? Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, and, you know, I, I could say something like, and I've said it before, I think that the jurors um, in the retrial who convicted Pell, I think they were sure. Um, now, even me just saying that as someone who sat through the entire thing, who was there, who witnessed it all, that has led to some people slamming me and saying I'm biased or whatever, um, you know, and yet somehow it's okay for commentators who weren't there to, to write comment and opinion pieces on the case. But even me just observing um, the, the way that the jury conducted themselves is somehow apparently biased. But um, the mistrial and the retrial, they weren't identical. You know, the whole point of a mistrial is that something went wrong. You can't run the trial exactly the same way because mm. something went wrong. Uh, the jurors couldn't come up with a verdict. So it wasn't exactly the same trial. And um, watching the, the jurors in, in the retrial, um, they were diverse. You know, they had different prof professions. One was a church pastor. There was a school teacher. Um, and they really listened and weighed up everything very, very carefully. And, and I think that they were sure of their decision. Um, whether or not they were right, that's something for the appeals courts to, to decide. Yeah. 
I mean, look, George Bell was acquitted. We know that. Uh, we also know the findings of the Royal Commission, which it does feel like was somewhat overshadowed uh, in the wake of the acquittal of George Pell. But you're right about it. You make a very good point of, um, of clarifying this towards the end of the book. Pell knew children were abused and that priests were being moved from parish to parish in an attempt to deal with them rather than being reported to police. It meant these abuses spread like an epidemic through parishes, abusing children in new churches, schools, camps and communities. His response to the commission's finding were the same as ever, cold, dismissive, resolute, tone deaf, and most of all, disingenuous. Little seemed to have changed from when he stood before the Royal Commission in 2016 and before survivors of abuse from Ballarat told the commission that Ridsdale's abusing was a sad story and it wasn't of much interest to me. So those, that's George Pell's response to, to the findings which were released after the trial. And I suppose I'd just be interested in your thoughts and reflecting on both his personal response to these, these crimes and these abuses and the Catholic Church's response generally as an institution in the wake of the Royal Commission. How much has changed? How much still needs to change? One of the things the, the Royal Commission found very clearly, and, and again, this isn't me, this is experts with much more knowledge than myself, you know, um, who have researched this for years and who are employed by the Royal Commission to, to do research. Um, and this, this is based on the thousands of witnesses who gave evidence. This is based on the, the Royal Commissioners and Justice McClellan's findings. Um, they found that institutions that are entities unto themselves with their own rules and their own procedures that operate outside of criminal law and civil law, um, that is where abuse thrives. And so after the Royal Commission's um, extensive five-year inquiry, they found that one of the key issues with the Catholic Church is the way that it has its own canon law, has its own rules, has its own hierarchy. It's often not subject to um, outside accountability. And I asked myself, what's changed? Um, in terms of that accountability and transparency. When the Royal Commission found that anything um, admitted to in confession in terms of child sexual abuse should be reported to police by the priests who hear it, we had archbishops up in arms by that suggestion, just refusing, saying that they would go to jail rather than go to police with allegations of child sexual abuse or admissions of child sexual abuse. The arrogance of that. You know, the arrogance to say that, no, you know, we, we reject the findings of this five-year inquiry. We reject thousands of victim stories. We reject the independent, the independent inquiry of numerous experts and, and judicial figures. We're going to continue to do it our way. What do you, what do you, what do you say to that? Um, it's appalling. And this is why we can't forget that, Child sexual abuse is not a historical issue. You know, while you still have institutions that have their own procedures or have a lack of accountability or visibility to the outside, children will still be abused. Um, and it is happening at the moment in residential care. It's happening in the youth justice system. It's happening in foster care. So while we continue to accept these kinds of comments from people in the church that they're somehow different, um, we can't get on top of this issue. And, and, and that is what I want people to really kind of reconcile with and recognize. Um, I just think it's sheer arrogance. I, I can tell you, um, <laughs> you're getting a little bit emotional there, uh, Mel, to be honest. And uh, I think that's rooted in your passionate advocacy, or at least your 
centering of the voices of victims. And that, that is what is really comes through in this book. Uh, almost every chapter begins with a short quote, uh, often from a survivor, giving testimony and giving evidence to the Royal Commission. Um, the last couple of chapters of the book are really focused on, you know, how can we stop this and things like this from happening? How can we make things better um, for victims? And what shines through in the book too is the extraordinary strength of survivors and victims and advocates, um, some who you interview and, and you tell their stories. What, what have you learned from reporting on these people who show incredible strength, um, surviving what they've been through and, and trying to make things better. I might um, actually read a little excerpt from the book on that, if that's okay. Do you mind if I, if I do that? It's your um, book. You've written a book. You're allowed. <laughs> so this is from um, one of the final chapters, which is on victims. Um, and I talk about what it, what it takes to, to come forward. Coming forward to report abuse is complicated. A review of the empirical literature examining the impact of child sexual abuse on interpersonal functioning, led by Ramona Alagia from the University of Toronto and published in 2017, examined factors that facilitated or presented a barrier to the disclosure of child sexual abuse. Why don't more children disclose the fact that they have suffered even after they become adults? The study found there were more barriers preventing children from disclosing than there were supports in place to help, encourage or enable them to feel safe enough to tell someone. Environment, age and cultural factors all played a part. A lack of analysis found that disclosure is often a process and not a single event. People may disclose their abuse directly or indirectly using different language at different times, omitting certain details and testing the responses of different people. They may disclose through diary entries or imagery. Different factors may trigger a move towards disclosure. For example, some victims are confronted with the trauma of their abuse once they have children of their own. Or memories of their abuse might surface when their children turn the same age as they were when they were abused. Seeing themselves in their child at the same age may prompt them to comprehend just how small and innocent they too could have been at that age. And it helps them to appreciate that the abuse could not have possibly been their fault. The relationship to the perpetrator also played a role in disclosure, Elagia found. Disclosure was much more difficult when the victim lived with the perpetrator or when the perpetrator was close to the family, such as a family friend, relative or respected community member. It turns out that it is a destructive myth that child sexual abuse is something that adults should move past and forget about just because it might have happened decades prior. This belief implies that victims have a choice in terms of their suffering and their recovery from abuse. It implies that trauma is a process that survivors of abuse can always predict or control. But not all victims are the same in terms of the impact of their abuse on them. Thank you, Mel. I mean, yeah, that gives you a, a sense of, 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 of the last, a real third of the, of the book, which is clearly stating a mission to learn from this process, to pull out the issues that it throws up. And you know, again, as I say, centering the voices and experiences of, of abuse survivors um, in this book is so crucial. I think it comes back to so this well. idea as well about, about the complainant, you know, the fact that it so often came up in the reports and in the, more the commentary about the case that the complainant should have done this. Yeah. If this happened, then he would have done this. He would have told this person, he would have run, he would have screamed, he would have acted in this way. And if you're going to pick apart the Pell trial, don't use those myths to do it. 
Um, there are other reasons you could legitimately say this is a complex case and it's really hard to know what happened and maybe Pella's innocent. But don't perpetuate the myths. You don't need to. And I think that was the lazy response of people who weren't there and who were just pulling out of the defence playbook. And you could tell. You could tell they weren't there. You could tell that they didn't have all of the the evidence before them. And I think, you know, that is what really frustrated me. Um, you know, I hope this book at least gives people the evidence and the context and um, the the research that you need to come into a case as complex of, as that of Cardinal George Pell. It certainly does that. I can't rec- recommend the book uh, highly enough. Um, thank you so much uh, for having me here tonight, Melissa Davy. Congratulations on the book. Everybody watching, thank you for joining us. And uh, yes, please go out and, um, and get the case of George Pell if there are survivors or people with experience of this stuff joining us tonight. My heart is with you. I hope you're doing okay and I hope you find peace. I'll hand back over to Mel to, uh, to finish up. Yeah, so I have a few um, thank yous that I'd really like to, to go through. Um, first of all, Tom Ballard, thank you so much for doing this for me. Um, it really helped to have a friendly face do something like this um, tonight. Um, for all of you watching, you probably know Tom as a TV presenter. Maybe you've heard him on the radio. Um, maybe you've heard his podcast, Explain It Like I'm... Like explain it like I'm a six-year-old. Um, but you might not know that Tom is also writing a book of his own. Um, it's now going to be out early next year. Is that correct, Tom? 2021? Uh, yes, Some, sometime then, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a funny rant about the future for Australian millennials. So look out for that. Um, I want to thank Henry again for trusting me to do this book. Um, it was a hard process. Sometimes I... Uh, was behind on deadlines and had a lot on my plate that meant I couldn't quite always keep up. But um, you were there with me throughout the entire process. So thank you so much. Thank you to Taste Kelly from Scribe for all the publicity and the hard work you've done with this book. Um, and thank you to Benith and Oldfield from Zeitgeist Agency. Um, I really appreciate you helping me navigate this process um, when I didn't know what I was doing at all. Thank you to Readings for hosting this event. Um, I really appreciate you having me and for engaging in topics that are really difficult, but really, really important. Um, And to everyone who is watching tonight, who took the time on a Tuesday to to come along and support this, um, thank you so much for, for listening and watching. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.